Welcome to the Abundant Grace Podcast, where we discuss the gospel, freedom in Christ, and victorious Christianity. My name is Emily Lewis, and I am so honored that you are here. Sometimes Christianity can feel complicated or become heavy. I'm here to lighten that load. I pray that the chats had on this broadcast will empower and encourage you in your walk with Jesus. Hello, friends. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Abundant Grace Podcast. Today, I have an interview with my friend, Rebecca Palmer. And the first thing I want to do is just give a disclaimer, starting out that Rebecca does talk about abuse that she endured within the church that she grew up in and the college that she went to. So if you have little kids around or if that's something that you're not ready to listen to, I just want you to know that out of the gate. She doesn't share any details, um, but I just want you to be prepared that her story um, is heavy. Rebecca was one of the first people that I thought of when I started this podcast that I wanted to have on as a guest because the premise for this show is that I want to help women who have been hurt specifically by church or by legalism or who have been handed a harsh view of God through some kind of life circumstances. I want to help them heal their relationship with God. And I think my friend Rebecca is unique because she doesn't allow herself to be defined by what has happened to her or even her physical disabilities and maintains relationship with God. And while there are things within her situation that we can learn from and that should have been handled better, she has a super gracious view towards wanting to stay in community with other believers despite past hurts. And so I wanted to have her on to share her story and why she didn't run away from all things Christianity or even from the church. So I know that this will be an encouragement to you. My favorite part is when she talks about her identity in Christ and how she doesn't have to be defined by her abuse or by physical disabilities, but she can be defined by Jesus. But I will not give you any more spoilers. Um, I hope you enjoy listening to Rebecca's story. Welcome to the show, Rebecca. Thank you, Emily. Thanks for being here. Kind of strange to talk in person as well, face-to-face at least, because it's been, we've known each other a very long time, but have never done something like this. Yes. I, I mean, we probably haven't seen each other since, like, we were, what, 12, 13? <laughs> something like that. So go ahead and um, tell us a little bit about yourself and what your passions are and all that. Sure. So my name's Rebecca Palmer, and um, I have a degree in secondary Christian education, and I'm currently working on a degree in professional communication and emerging media. I have one semester left of that. Um, I'm an author. I have two previous published books with a, a company called Anical Press. They once were called Life Sentence Publishing. They're called A Letter to My Friend. 
which is largely about my experience in church youth group and a letter to myself, which is my analysis of, and it's not exhausted by any means. It's more of a, like a help book for those who have been abused in um, specifically church situations and kind of a, a, a letter to ministry leaders on the help those who have been harmed by that in their church versus the predators. And then most recently um, I've been dabbling in poetry and um, I live with a a rare disease called cystinosis. And a friend of mine helped me publish um, a full length poetry book called Map of My Heart. And she also had an anthology she edited with stories of people who've lived with this rare disease. And I contributed to that as well. And that one's called strength lives touched by cystinosis so it's not just people impacted in their body with it parents have written in and and anthology that sounds like a great uh, project to be a part of yes it was especially because when you hear a word like cystinosis i mean it's not like the word cancer or diabetes where people immediately have this image of what what might be going on in the person's body i guess a really quick definition of cystinosis is it's a cellular disease that's genetic. So instead of affecting a specific organ and tissue, it affects the whole body um, because we're all made up of cells and our cells are made up of tissues. But like an easier way for others who've never heard of it to think about it would be to think about kidney failure because the, a lot of people with cystinosis have kidney transplants for better quality of life. But that's like the tip of the iceberg because they, we also deal with, I say they, we also deal with um, bone and muscle, nerve wasting, um, different things like uh, thyroid failure, um, eyesight loss, other diseases can come about, like diabetes, just with hospital and clinic life, you're susceptible to different things that you could potentially to live with. So, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> it's kind of a mouthful. <laughs> yes. Yep. I know you've written about a lot of your experiences, and I heard some podcast interview, and I appreciate you using your voice to talk about your story. So I know, I know that's not everyone's calling and not everyone's desire, but I appreciate you shedding the light on that. I'd like to start with a couple quick questions for Sounds people good. to get to know you just for fun. So where did you grow up? So I born and reared a Wisconsin girl. I'm a, a northern, northern girl for sure of the ice and tundra. Well, not so far north as Canada, but yeah, r- rural Wisconsin, white working class family, my first time in the cities was because of major medical, <laughs> medical things. Otherwise, agriculture, farmland. So I've got a lovely, I think Wisconsin's one of the prettiest states, but that definitely is biased. We get all four seasons here. Um, yes, our winters are extremely cold, but we have beautiful fall foliage and um our summers are a bit hot, and when I say that, people are like, wait, what? It's like, well, it can get to 104 degrees, but that's rare, but I'm a person where it's like, when it starts getting 80, I'm like, yep, no air conditioning, iced tea, so. <laughs> Me too. Me too. The last quick question, what is a verse that, or a passage that has kept you grounded in your faith? That kind of has changed throughout the years um, for a long time my life first, which I still would say 
it is my life first, was and is Isaiah 41, 13, which is, For I, the Lord thy God, will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help thee. But lately, I've actually found great um, comfort in the first couple chapters of Genesis. I love stories of origins and creation stories. And just the last several months, I've really been (laughs) repeat listening to like Genesis 1 through 3 um, has been really comforting to me right now. Mm -hmm. And um, kind kind of like a grounding of I'm made in his image these days. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So could you give us an overview of like your introduction to Jesus and when you knew that you needed him for salvation? I can. Both sides of my parents grew up in the Catholic Church. I was very young when my parents were still going there, so I don't have like concrete memories, but we started going to a Baptist church when I was about four years old. My earliest memories when I was five were of a a Sunday school teacher. Back when churches used flannel graphs (laughs) to show kids Bible stories, and one of the Sunday school teachers the topic was specifically heaven, and she was talking about Jesus preparing a place for those who believed. And I distinctly remember wanting to know who Jesus is and was. And I also remember raising my hands when the teacher asked if anybody wanted to know more about Christ. And at, at that time, I think I also was like, I wanted to also go and talk privately to the teacher too, because I really liked her as a five-year-old girl. And I recall like those verses in John, since that experience mostly held a lot of feelings for me when I was in between the ages of 12 and 16, I often read the Romans Road, which for those who've been Christians for any length of time in like a Baptistic or evangelical type church, understand that to be verses in Paul's book to Romans about how we are all sinners, yet God still loved us. So in order for us to get back to God, we needed a savior, which is Christ. And I would say I concretely, I have concrete memories of calling upon the name of the Lord when I was 16 years old. I I had a lot of doubt between the ages of 12 and 16, um, a lot of fear about where I was going when I died, which you know, it made sense because when I was 12 was when I had my first major surgery in hospital with a kidney transplant and that kidney transplant. And a lot of people might not know this, but when you have an organ transplant, your cancer risk goes up and by different percentages. Um, with kidney transplants, it's about 5% of people who have those surgeries are at a cancer risk. So I dealt with cancer associated with medication taken for my transplant. And so death was on my mind a lot. (laughs) So there was a lot of wondering about afterlife and where I was going. And because I come from a Christian family, I was perusing the scriptures, maybe more than your average 12 to 16 year old. I don't know. Maybe that's, maybe that is normal in Christian families. I don't know, but that's definitely where, where I, I began this, um, journey in my earthly body. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. I relate to the like questioning and the basis of fear. It was how I related to God. And then 
took a while before it was like, okay, I'm going to make this mine. So how has your view of God been shaped through church or through your own personal walk with him? Okay, so I viewed God as some being that I could talk to in prayer. So I'm the oldest of two brothers. Uh, My middle brother and I are are quite close in age. We're 16 months apart. And my youngest brother was born actually the year I went through my, my transplant surgery. My mom was my kidney donor, but before that, she had my youngest brother. So in March of 99, she had my youngest brother. In June, she was she gave me a kidney. I say that and reference that because spending a lot of time in medical environment was a lot of time with people who were not my age, especially as somebody who is in a, the percentage who had an organ transplant. And then now I'm 12 years old with cancer. Granted, I was not the youngest one with cancer on the cancer where there was a lot of three and four-year-olds, but that divide still, I was often, often by myself in rooms getting treatment. So for me, God was definitely, I, being raised to be spiritually aware that God exists was something that just naturally I, I, I reached out because of being isolated in a lot of circumstances where I was typically the youngest in the room, the youngest with severe medical issues in the room. My Christian school that I went to, K through 12, was quite small. My graduating class had, there was three of us. I think there might have been like 20 or 30 kids total in the school. By the time I graduated, when I started in kindergarten, there were about 60. The enrollment was 60 kids, and then it slowly just got um, smaller and smaller. So then ideas and, and thoughts about God were largely shaped by men in the independent fundamental Baptist movement, which now looking back, I I did have a fear that every little thing I did was to be punished in a greater way than I probably then realistically was led to believe. And by that, I mean, even though I had accepted Christ, I just still had this fear that I wasn't good enough or never would be. So I I had this fear that even my body was shameful. And that has to do with the previous, my previous book when I talked about um, addressing the issue of sex abuse. So, or when a person has something so traumatic as, as a body violation and nobody, even if somebody did do a heinous crime, and when I say heinous crime, like, um, and I don't know, think of like the worst thing you can think of. The reaction isn't to sexually abuse somebody. But when you're especially prepubescent and you don't really understand or have language around something that happened to you and then you're constantly hearing preaching um, about staying pure um, and you didn't have a choice in whether you consented or not to um, a sexual activity you begin to feel dirty and and gross and while the preachers in the room might know the context of every person sitting under their voice. You start fearing things like, well, maybe it's not enough that I accepted Christ, which as we know, like there's grace. And when a person does commit sin or like, you know, if somebody breaks the law, 
in the United States of America because that's where we live. You know, there's certain retributions and actions, but nothing like hellfire isn't the damnation for a crime. Hell is a place designed for the devil and his angels. And when you have the blood of Christ as your redemption, when you're saved, you're both redeemed and sinner. But this constant cloud of fear was, was, was always over me just in the, in the rhetoric of the preaching. And I wasn't connecting the dots. I was constantly doubting, well, maybe I need to get saved again, because that just, just wasn't enough. And it was very based on what I did in that amount of fear, which now looking back, it's like, it was all Christ with my personal sins. There was nothing I did to deserve being sexually abused. But when you're constantly three times a week being under the voices of these, of these powerful men and in my case, one of those men, his sons, was my abuser, and nothing had happened to him in the form of, we need to call you out and justice needs to be done. You start feeling like you are the problem. And so I was under a lot of fear until like probably my mid-20s until I decided, well, it wasn't like, it wasn't just me deciding it. I started questioning how I was being treated as a person. When I graduated, when I came back to my childhood church, with that degree. But at that time, I, I had told people kind of, when I say people, I mean, the leadership in my childhood church knew I had been abused, but they treated it like it was, they treated me as if it was somehow my fault. They monitored me. If there was a young man around me, it was like he would get told about that, which was completely <laughs> not what should have happened. And I would get because I graduated Bible college and I didn't have a spouse, anytime I would want to help out with youth or anything, it was required that my dad be present as if my father was supposed to be protective of everything. But unless a parent is an abuser, it's not the parent's fault when a child or a teen, there's a sexual crime happening. Um, and I would notice when single young men came home from my childhood church after Bible college, if they wanted to help out in a ministry, they didn't have a parent that had to monitor them. They could just, just do it. There's this very male influence, very unbiblical, like authoritarian type teaching going on. So and that was initially what had me questioning about, about leaving and then like actually questioning, well, well, God, can I do, can I do nothing right? Because anytime I do anything, I feel like this world puts a burden on me and it's like my body's fault. I don't know if any of this is making sense, but feel free to question. It's interesting you say that you carried guilt like it was your fault for the abuse. And I have heard that before, but something, a connection I've never made was you not only thought it was your fault because you had done wrong in the past, you almost felt like you had deserved it. And that was how you were relating to God. He was coming almost harshly down on you. Is that? Yes, that's, that's, that ex that's exactly what you're hearing me stumbling over. Yes. I, I, I carried like, as is like, this was shaping my experience of how God looked at me. And I didn't realize it was until I ended up not attending my childhood church three times a week. And because I specifically had a health history that a lot of people were aware of, instead of what needed to happen, which was, okay, civil 
judgment needed to take place. The authorities, meaning the police, probably should have been, not probably, they should have been involved. And let's just be the, the honesty and the transparency about what happened. Instead of that, it became this, oh, Rebecca's just not feeling well. She's dealing with a lot of stuff medically. It was like my illness was the perfect excuse for abuse cover-up specifically in my in my childhood church. And it, it definitely affected things in Bible college because when I was in Bible college, a similar thing happened. Um, one of the deacons attempted to molest me. And because I had been in this situation when I was five and this time I was 21 years old, I was able to physically leave faster than when I was a small child. And because I had been in that dynamic of you always tell pastor, I repeated that, okay, I'm, I'm going to tell the pastor. And again, that same pattern of, well, what did you do? What were you wearing? This very... Um, stuff that happens to you is your fault should ask ask God for forgiveness when I wasn't I wasn't there to address my current prideful or whatever whatever um spiritual sin I was dealing with I didn't ever tell my pastors about abuse to address me I I I, I told it to address the crime that these men or in my case when I was a child it was a young teenage boy this boy and this man did to me and I was seeking justice so that I could continue on in my life and that this person could be corrected <laughs> and dealt with and move on. Um, but that never happened in either church. And then so I carried this sense of, I falsely carried the sense of God's, God's will being that, well, my body is just there for male use because men can't control themselves, which is completely, it's not only a terrible <laughs> paradigm to work from as a female, but also to then see every man as a potential predator that I came across with. Because no one stood up for you. No one right. said that was wrong. Them either, either they were aggressors or passive in your situation. Right. It's like, yeah, I know, I know living on planet Earth sucks, and I know that bad things happen to good people, but, okay, we're talking about a specific action in a specific crime here, and if you're going to have this belief, if we're going to divine the scriptures that we're all sinners, and yes, we're in a church where we, everybody who's a member in the church has a testimony of salvation, aren't we going to correct our brothers and sisters in Christ and make them accountable because the world's going to look at us for an example. And if we don't have enough love for each other to correct and have the sense of justice and redemption, then, then what are we here for? <laughs> Why are we, we congregating? So it was a lot of heavy stuff and a, a lot, a lot of silence, a lot of, a lot of, um, like I said, I feel like I keep, um, I'm pretty reiterative, reiterative here with the guilt, the shame, misplaced guilt and shame. Like, Yes, I should have guilt for lying to my mother and apologize to my mother, but my guilt and shame should not have been around males using my body the way they did. And that definitely affected not only my, myself and how I was then viewing a God that I found great comfort in um, as a child and teen and young adult in medical situations, it also affected um, 
even though, like I said, my, my parents um, were not and are not, my abusers, it, it's almost like the family, because they know and they also know that it was handled wrong. We, we as a family should have gone to the police, but we didn't know until later. It's also affected um, the family dynamic uh, in all that. And it's like that guilt and that shame doesn't belong on us. And it really, really does a number um, spiritually. I think it's important to note that shame and guilt aren't from the Holy Spirit. He will convict you, even like you said about lying or little things. But shame and guilt should never be carried around as if they are conviction. Because they don't think they're the same thing. Because conviction is God calling me into freedom and he's trying to guide me in the best way. And he's not being oppressive. And he... He says his burden is light. He's not trying to put that burden on us. So if we're carrying that around, I don't think it's even necessary at all. I would, I would agree with your assessment. Yes. Conviction and guilt is definitely two different things. Yes. That's what I agree with. So how, what has been most impactful to you in helping you reframe who God is? So what's been most helpful for me actually I ended up, my family ended up moving from where I had grown up for about 20 years. And one of the churches that then was closer as far as driving distance for me was this little Reformed Baptist church. And the pastor there and his wife, when I started going to services there, not so, with this pandemic, things have been different, but let's see, when did I start? talking with this pastor and his wife. So this has been the last six years. Something as, I want to say, use the word simple in like biblical doctrine was being taught and preached in services versus topics on outward appearance repetitively because it separated this idea that separated my body from and. I mentioned this being a very, the, the parts of man being separate is very United States American perspective of being a body, mind, and spirit. And with understanding and being reminded that God is a spirit and worshiping him in spirit and truth that having this imperfect flesh and body, and I'm not, I'm, I'm also not stating that because of my sin, I have a disease because I, I don't. That's not what I'm saying. Just flesh, flesh, even that Adam's nature, human flesh, um, it's going to, it's going to be imperfect. We're going to have suffering in this flesh, but separating that from my understanding of God and embracing the idea that when I worship God, it's in spirit and in truth. And then incidentally, that has also helped me think about the shame and guilt that I, I carried on my body for so long and that I don't need this identity in my earthly body to come before his throne was a big deal to me when I first heard it. And now it is a big deal to me, particularly as somebody that doesn't just um, use my story to talk about sex abuse, but also as a disability justice advocate where, yes, I do use the term disabled to describe myself, but that has nothing to do with my presence before God's throne. And if you've spent any time in a Christian church, you know that the Old Testament in the Jewish culture, then people who were maimed or had some sort of infirmity in the body is what 
they called it. Coming to the temple or in the tabernacle was, was something they didn't do. And understanding and knowing that, you know, I also don't live in the time of when Christ was in human flesh, when he performed these miracles. And there's so many, you know, like in particular in the book of Luke, I think with the story of the four men that raise their um, friend in the bed down so that Christ will heal, heal them and the Pharisees get missed. And Jesus's response is, well, do you want me to say he is whole or that his sins are forgiven? Which one? Because it's the Sabbath day. I don't claim to know like <laughs> the existential meaning of that, but the application that I am worthy because of the redemption of Christ on my spirit, nothing inside of me. I don't know. It just, just reframed I mean, I do know, I say, I don't know, as in the, I hope I'm coming across clear with the words I'm choosing. It just reframed um, thinking about God and like in Galatians, more understanding with neither male nor female, neither Jew nor Greek, all these things that I, that have been constructed to describe me in human terms, I can just put that aside and worship to God. And that, that was a bigger deal than anything I had heard um, in my short lifespan so so basically adopting his identity as your own your identity your gospel identity your truest identity being that of your spirit instead of all of these just having to carry around the burden of describing yourself as your experiences or your background yes and, and I mean, I still, when I'm talking about earthly things, fleshly, not necessarily worldly, like I said, it could be me talking about rare disease and advocating there, or it could be me talking about the, the shame I felt as a female, you know, I can address that in earthly terms, but when I go and I, and I worship on Sunday, it's no longer about my shame or guilt. It's now about my presence in Christ with the spirit. Yes, exactly. Yep. I love that. That, yeah, is so important to be grounded in that, um, that identity in him. So you've had your share, more than your share, of negative experiences with the church. And I would love to talk about what has kept you from giving up on the church and walking away. I know this pastor has been impactful, but what, what kept you from wanting to just run away from all of it? So, um, there are many times where I don't physically go, this was even before the pandemic, where I just don't physically go to church. And, um, previously, like in my twenties, that decade, um, I really struggled with that, what you just said, like, okay, I should just throw it. What, what do I need to go to church for? Um, if it keeps bringing back like certain smells, certain um, things talked about that bring me back, um, especially with the more so, not necessarily the event itself, but the trauma that comes with not being believed or being believed and not being stood up for. And then I started thinking about, well, when I was doing research for my second book, A Letter to Myself, just coming across statistics and numbers of the majority of people being abused by a relative or someone they know, it's like, well, the idea of family, you, um, I mean, granted, if you, if the abuser is somebody in your immediate family and you have to leave, 
and then you generally choose your own family at that point. But the idea of creating a family, the idea of of institutions, that's not what I'm criticizing or throwing away at all. It's how people are treated, how human beings are treated inside a family, inside a church, inside a school. Because, I mean, there's so many, and I, I dislike when people bring this up when somebody's trying to be honest about an, um, a trauma that happened to them. But, you know, universities have sex abuse allegations pulled against them. Our government officials do. Um, people in church leadership, um, people in families. And it's those structures aren't necessarily the problem, but how human beings have behaved within those structures. I'm not going to say I've totally gotten out of my railing and ranting phase because with myself, I do have post-traumatic stress disorder, largely because my trauma was never validated or seen and two whole congregations dismissed it. So um, with my medical history, I happened to be diagnosed with PTSD. So I still often spiral down into thinking of like, why, why do I even, even try? But then I always come back to that point of, I have to exist in these spaces here on earth. So how am I going to make it better? Not only for myself, but for other people. And how am I going to just promote by being both a redeemed person and a sinner? How am I going to exemplify that grace and forgiveness and trust? And it sounds like, oh, yeah, that's great. That's beautiful. But it's incredibly messy. And I'm still very imperfect at it um, as I exist now. <laughs> it, it, it makes those verses about um, how long, oh, Lord, and when will you come back and that kind of thing mean more to me mm -hmm. in that sense. And that's kind of like the point I feel of Christianity is aren't we all just waiting for Christ to come back and fix this thing, whether we get there through death or the rapture, that's just where the longing's at. And it's, it's actually good. I have that longing because that's evidence of the Holy spirit and not my prideful spirit that pops up. Mm -hmm. I love that you're honest about that struggle because like looking at someone who looks like they've come through the other side could make someone else feel like they should have things figured out. Uh, but it's okay to embrace that struggle. And that's part of our Christian life. And kind of going back to what you're saying, our spirit and our body being separate. I'm present here, but I am looking for something better um, in the future. Yes. So who is God to you personally now at this point in your journey? At this point in my journey, he is someone, I say someone like he's a, he's a human being. Um, Christ was God in human flesh. Um, God is that spirit that I worship and am kind of in, he's very like, the, the mystery surrounding the grace of God and his influence in the lives of human beings is where I'm at right now. Um, so definitely growing in faith and also understanding what his son Christ as God in human flesh, what his legacy was as a human on this planet has been more intriguing to me of late as well. Okay, so how did this work when God was wrapped in our flesh? That's like mind-blowing. 
mind-blowing. <laughs> it is mind-blowing, for sure. So what would you tell, at this point in your life, what would you tell a younger version of yourself? Um, maybe when you were um, struggling with your abuse and, and then fear of God, and then uh, what would you tell a younger version of yourself? I would tell her that you don't have to know all the answers right now because you're still not going to know all the answers 10 years from now. And you can, being as rough as being stuck feels, you're going to feel stuck several more times in life. And it's not everything in your present moment. And it's okay to be there and struggle and there are going to be times where you feel reprieve. It's not going to be, be a constant. Mm -hmm. And it's okay to reach out to mental health professionals in addition to people you look up to in the faith and accepting those resources people offer to help your mental and emotional well-being. That's not wrong. So grab those things. <laughs> good. That's good. Um, I know you are active on your blog still and on Facebook. Where would where can people find you and connect with you more? So if people have Goodreads, I like to, to direct people to find me on Goodreads. Uh, my blog that I'm active on right now is focused mostly on advocacy and awareness, which I'm totally fine with people who maybe are interested in okay, I really want to know more about the cystinosis and people that live, we call them rare diseases because they are rare. Like with my disease specifically, 500 people in the USA have it. Another rare disease might be 20 people. Another rare disease might be, you know, a thousand people. But collectively, there's 7,000 rare diseases. So that makes them not very rare. So if people are honestly interested in that aspect of, work I do um, my blog is a good place to go but specifically with the books I write I usually recommend Goodreads and then I also have a, a author Wix site sounds awesome thank you so much for taking the time to be here Rebecca I appreciate yeah. it I appreciate you sharing your story I think there's so much value in letting people know that they're not alone in their struggles yes it here, when I hear other people's stories and it's something I can relate to that, that feeling of, of collective community versus I'm, I'm the only one going through this is, is important to me as well. So thank you for having me on. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for listening to the Abundant Grace podcast. I would love to connect with you either to hear your story or hear your comments on today's episode. You can find me hanging out on Instagram, emily.abundantgrace, or send me an email, hello at emilyklewis.com. That's emily, the letter K, L-O-U-I-S dot com. Until next time, remember, God's grace abounds and won't ever run out.